Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Audra Simons. Hi, Rachel. Audra. How are you? Hi. I'm well. How are you? I feel like I haven't talked to you in years. It, it has been. been like a exactly week. Exactly, a whole week. <laughs> and, and we're going through the dark stages in the UK of entering the winter solstice. So I'm generally sitting around in the dark a lot. Oh, okay. That, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never, never a dull moment. All right. Well, let's jump into today's discussion. I'm so excited for today's guest. We've got Laura Maffeo. She is a senior service designer at Steampunk. Uh, she's also an author of Designing Data Governments from the Ground Up, which was adapted to a LinkedIn learning course, which is kind of amazing. I've never met anybody who did that. Uh, and then uh, on top of all her other accolades, she's also an adjunct lecturer at George Washington University. Lauren, welcome. Hi, Rachel and Audra. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Brilliant to have you. So shall we jump straight in? And so let's do it. We, we yes. have one of our favorite subjects beyond cybersecurity is talking about artificial intelligence and the impact of that, <laughs> that it's having just across the board. And so I wanted to hear your opinion of how is the rise of AI impacted on data governance and how organizations manage their data? I love this question because I have, if I'm being honest, kind of been slapping myself this year thinking if I had just named my book Designing AI Governance from the Ground Up, I might have maybe five times the sales now because the, because in all seriousness, the biggest thing, I, I really try to hit the point home that in order to succeed at deploying accurate, successful, trustworthy, and transparent AI, you have to have data governance. It is not a nice to have, it is a must have. I still think even in our industry, there is too big of a gap between acknowledging the role that data plays within AI, which is that it's the foundation of any AI that you deploy. You can't, I mean, at the end of the day, AI is data and it's finding, using, uh, technology to find patterns within often large amounts of data. And that disconnect is something that I see I see the gap uh, decreasing, but I also think we're a little bit far from where we need to be. I think there's a big, uh, there's more acknowledgement in the industry that data governance writ large is not where it is supposed to be in order to deploy successful AI. And I would argue that that drives the over-reliance on large language models like ChatGPT, because organizations know that they are not prepared to deploy their own proprietary AI with the data that they have and the lack of governance. And so then they rely on external models, which may or may not be validated, which may not be updated regularly, which might have data drift. And so the, I think we are bridging that gap between data governance and AI, um, but I still see 
a big rush to the AI side of things without acknowledging the backbone. And I would say that that's true in the media as well. I mean, I don't see, I read quite a lot of tech news. I read the Wall Street Journal every morning, which covers AI ad nauseum. And I don't see data governance entering the conversation as much as I think it should. Uh, I think that's going to change. I think if we talk in five years, we'll be having a different conversation similar to cybersecurity and how five years ago, Nobody wanted to talk about cybersecurity, especially in open source communities. They basically would stick their fingers in their ears anytime you brought up uh, security issues with open source. And now, five years later, uh, there have been many attacks and uh, and many you know developers have had to work more than one holiday to try to patch issues. And I think we're going to have something similar happen with data. Humans are inherently reactive people. And I do think it's going to take something pretty big to get folks to acknowledge the role that data governance plays in order to drive that more high level substantial change. And I, I think that the problem is it's not just something really big. It always has to be something bad. To yes, happen 100%. before people take mm-hmm. it seriously, and and having read some of like well, quite a few different articles around this, and it's there's there's that whole when it comes to AI, if you feed it with garbage, you will get garbage mm-hmm. back out, and yes. and so can you talk around like what are some of the risks associated with not having AI governance framework in place? Absolutely. I think the biggest point on this note that I'd love to hit home is that we there's a big discussion about bias in AI and how the data that is used to train large AI algorithms, um, which affect large numbers of users, are not diverse enough or transparent enough. And I would I, what part of the reason I was interested in this book is the fact that I really believe that data governance is a form of AI ethics. You can't have one without the other. And the biggest benefit of data governance is is creating more transparent, trustworthy AI, because there is academic research showing that people have more trust in algorithms when they can see how the algorithms were trained, even if their output is often incorrect or less accurate. Um, And so that transparency aspect is going to be really crucial. Over the next few years, uh, I know, you know, Audra, you're in the UK and GDPR, of course, is uh, is the law of the land there. Um, And so and that means that European users and UK users have a lot of rights to their personal data and they have the ability to ask organizations how the data that they've collected on these users is being utilized for financial gain by those companies. And if if organizations are not able to give that information, then they are liable to be uh, to lose, I think, up to five to six percent of their annual revenue. Now, if you have a large organization like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, we all know that they have the money to pay those fines. And that's part of the issue with uh, with I would say that's an antitrust issue with data because those those types of companies which own 
the biggest data sets are too big to fail because, again, they can effectively just break the law and then pay the fines. But for the average organization, that t- losing five to six percent of your annual revenue in this economy is enough to mm-hmm. your business. And so exactly. it's something that leaders do have to take seriously. Uh, and, and in the U.S., we do have, as U.S. citizens, far fewer rights to our personal data, especially at the federal level. But we are seeing legislation at the state level, which is giving users more rights to and uh, autonomy over their data. Uh, for in uh, California is the biggest example, but we are also seeing legislation in Virginia and New York. And so I think that in order to create products um, and create AI, which is not just accurate, but also more transparent, that is going to be essential moving forward because users are going to have more rights over their personal data. And if organizations not only want to use AI, but stay in business doing so, uh, data governance is going to be essential. So um, I was reading the state of Hawaii is looking to create a statewide data governance framework. Um, What does that even mean? So like statewide, this is how we deal with data. I mean, is it, is it, can you talk about that at all? I can. Uh, so without knowing the state of Hawaii, I, uh, I, it's hard to be incredibly specific. But one thing that comes to mind is that when you think of Hawaii as a state, you, th- this is actually a great analogy for federated data governance, uh, which is, that's probably only a conversation I can have on a podcast like this, because most people would not think of federated data governance when they think of Hawaii. But if you think about the respective islands of Hawaii, that's a great analogy for a federated approach to data governance. And basically what that means is that it's a concept which pairs subject matter experts with uh, technical talent in order to create the the standards for data quality and consistency in their respective data domains. And then you, what happens is those subject matter experts who create the standards for governance pair with uh, technical talent like data engineers who operationalize those data standards for quality in the production environment, in the technical tools, uh, whether they're using Calibra or Informatica, which are pretty standard industry data governance tools. Uh, The idea here is that you have subject matter experts per data domain. Um, So in this case, it would be, you know, if every island in Hawaii is its own data domain, you would have a subject matter expert per domain. And that's the person who leads that area. Um, So they might manage a team. They also are the person closest to the data per domain. And so they're the best advised to write data definitions, to speak to data quality, um, to add uh, and update data definitions in their data catalog. And then what they do is they work with data engineers who can take the standards created by each domain subject matter expert and put them into production. And this step is really crucial with data governance because one of the biggest issues I see is that organizations, if they do have a data governance plan, it lives in a 60-page Word document that was last updated in 2005 and nobody even (laughs) knows where it is. And so then, as you can imagine, it never touches the tech side, the production environment. And as a result, the technical talent really views the data governance uh, as as an out-of-date 
compliance document which hinders innovation. And if done that way, they're not incorrect because in that that state, the data governance document does not dictate anything meaningful about the organizational approach to data. So when we think about Hawaii, I I think the biggest takeaway is considering that federated model where you have those subject matter experts per per data domain, which in this case could be each island, and then you have uh, that person paired with a technical lead to implement the data standards into one singular environment. That's another uh, thing that I think is really crucial with any data governance framework, you have to be very intentional about how you set up and design the technical environment. Uh, Because one of the biggest issues I see with data governance is that the data documentation, the data sets themselves do not live in a centralized place. And Mm. so then that makes it very difficult. So if you have that framework, which is, is prioritizing data domains and subject matter expertise per domain, then I think you can start to make progress in the technical environment and really start implementing your data governance standards into the tech. How do you keep up with it and keep it relevant, though? Because one of the things about as soon as you've kind of trained your model, the model is out of date because the data Mm -hmm. changes, things move on. How do you keep it relevant? That's a great question. And I love that you asked this because this is one of the biggest differences when we talk about deploying data to production versus deploying code. Of course, you're going to have to update code uh, after deployment in many cases. But when you're working with AI, I think a lot of people just focus on getting to production, getting out of the dev environment. Uh, But then the reality is that's only the beginning, because as you say, especially if you're using AI like machine learning, machine learning relies on the algorithms constantly ingesting new data, which is going to, we hope, improve the results of that algorithm. But if not, if left ungoverned, the opposite can happen. The quality of that model can degrade over time in what's known as data drift. And again, that's why data governance standards and data quality assessments are uh, so crucial because the lack of them leaves teams completely unprepared to assess data drift, to automate it, to get that high level picture of which data points are being used in which algorithms. And so it's really important to to set up data monitoring in your production environment so that you are able to spot issues as they occur. Uh, and then you can, and because that's also essential for data transparency and data inaccuracy. Uh, and part of what makes a training AI so difficult is that if you spot an error, you have to then roll back the model to mm-hmm. the point at which you spotted the bias and address it at the source. And so if you haven't set up data monitoring, uh, you don't know the source of the error. And so then it becomes a goose chase to try to find it. So data monitoring is absolutely essential. You do have to set up data drift and that can be as, you know, this is not a simple exercise that said, I think this really emphasizes why you at bare minimum need uh, conditions for past data that passes versus data that fails. I've spoken to QA engineers at data conferences this year who say 
we have no data quality standards. And so as a result, I feel like I can barely do QA because I don't have the pass fail conditions. And so that if you're looking for a place to start with data quality, that is it right there is is starting with the very basics of pass fail conditions, because then the other thing to keep in mind is that the data used in your algorithms needs to examples of both positive and negative classes. It needs to know what success looks like for data matches. It also needs to know what the data is not. And so pass fail conditions and defining those and then uh, operationalizing those standards in your architecture is really crucial to preventing data drift. And beyond data drift, there are the other more, well, more dangerous things that can happen, like on purpose, um, like data poisoning, where you're actually poisoning the data sets or confusing the data sets to cause that drift intentionally. Have you come across that in your work in terms of kind of intentional data poisoning? I have. Uh, I I would argue that to date, data poisoning is not a mainstream subject, or at least as mainstream as it sh- as it could or should be. Uh, but the reality is, is that as the volume of data grows and continues to grow exponentially, I think we're going to see more high profile instances of data poisoning. Uh, data poisoning at its most basic level is a malicious attack uh, that tries to manipulate the data in a uh, training set for an AI algorithm. And so this is a case where a hacker would be intentionally trying to manipulate the data that goes into a data set to produce a specific, often negative result. And this this is a risk with open source data and algorithms is that when it is open to anyone and everyone, then any in theory, anybody could infiltrate it. So I think right. this data poisoning concept is something that emphasizes why, you know, the chief data officer really needs to be working hand in hand with the CISO, uh, because data governance has a very essential cybersecurity component to it. And you have to be very clear also about uh, what personally identifiable information looks like for your business, because that because that's the sort of stuff where if that data is, you know, if, you, if there's a data poisoning attack on on social security numbers, on highly sensitive data, um, that could cause catastrophic results. And so uh, data poisoning is certainly something that I think needs to be assessed as part of any data governance framework. My book talks about Gartner's seven-step framework for data governance and emphasizing that um, you can't have one without the other six. And cybersecurity is, of course, a crucial component to it. And I think uh, preventing data poisoning is the big task ahead of any CDO and CISO in 2024. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity. We know, for instance, that uh, employees are the most likely source of a, of a cybersecurity slash data breach at organizations. And I do think that we've seen CISOs step up to the plate in terms of creating organizations that are more aware of what phishing attempts look like, of how to enable two-factor authentication, of how to create micro-learning courses which teach employees how to spot malicious attacks. Uh, This is something that I think Steampunk does exceptionally well, is teaching 
all of us to be on guard for hacking attempts. Um, and, and in any high profile uh, slash highly regulated industry, that is, again, not a nice to have. It is a must have. And I think that CDOs can learn a lot from CISOs who have taken that lead to create more cyber aware workforces. And I think one of the biggest challenges that that their leaders will face is identifying when data poisoning has actually happened. I think that's yes. one of the biggest challenges that they'll hit because um, Google had it for a period of, of time where um, they weren't able to identify spam because their data sets had, had been infiltrated and poisoned so that mm. things previously that was like that spam were not spam. And so... Lots of people, spammers out there were having an awesome time, kind of just like, oh, it just passes through. It's not spam because of that. And it took quite a period of time to identify that that had happened. Yes, I agree. And and I think that's going to that that is, again, going to become more common. I think any time you use a platform like Gmail, where there is a very the large data set that could be infiltrated, those I think are the most high risk opportunities for data poisoning because you can do it at scale. Uh, and th this is an interesting twist on data governance data it, because I often say when I'm talking about bias in AI is that it is very often not intentional. It, it isn't so much that data teams and data scientists set out to create algorithms that are biased uh, for or against certain types of users. It's that there are there's indirect bias in the data sets where sensitive attributes like race or religion correlate with non-sensitive attributes. And they often do this in ways that we cannot see due to black box algorithms. And so then that's how you get products which are biased towards some users um, or uh, you know, work to the detriment of others. Uh, but data poisoning is quite different because this is very much a a malicious attack on AI and on data sets. I worry if I'm being frank about the future of warfare and oh, yeah. because I mean, many, many of us in the industry talk about how future wars will increasingly be fought online as opposed to in person. And I think so I think in terms of national security, data poisoning is huge. And yes. I and I think that's something that Absolutely. Again, it's not a nice to have. It's a must have because when we think about um, what that looks like, I I see data poisoning being a huge risk for uh, for warfare in the future. Oh, yeah. um, you know, we're speaking at the end of 2023 ahead of a, a year in which many global elections will occur mm -hmm, in global right. democracies. And I do see data poisoning as a real risk there. I hope I'm wrong, but it's it's certainly something that I think is under discussed in the industry to date. Absolutely. I, you know, I don't even trust anything anymore, Lauren. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the TikTok, uh, you know, I'm on the older side of the TikTok audience, but I literally will go, I'll see something, and then I, I go check it against three, four, five sources to see, is this even true? Uh, because, you know, the videos are very compelling, deepfake videos, misinformation, uh, you know, and I put something in a chat GPT and see what I get back, and I still have to go double, you know, triple check that as well. It's, 
it's a crazy time. It is. You know, if you don't do all that work to go verify that something is true. And even sometimes after five sources, Lauren, I'm not sure that I've actually kind of come to a conclusion one way or the other. And that's been troubling me lately. Well, I'll be honest. I'm impressed that you, you know, quintuple check your sources <laughs> because the reality is that many of us don't do that. We don't take that time oh, to validate our sources. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, and one of the biggest things, yeah, but I, but I, and, and that is not a good thing. It's certainly not a good thing to be paranoid. Having said that, I'm, I am impressed that you even take the time to validate the source of this information because I think that's another risk of it, of malicious attacks like data poisoning and deep fakes. That's, I mean, we could have a whole episode just on deep fake yes. creation and what that looks like uh, because that's another big concern of mine, especially ahead of 2024 is the the f- mm-hmm. how it is getting more easy to more create really fake easy. content oh, yeah. and audio. it's, uh, it's yeah it, yes. audio is huge audio yeah. is huge um, and that's going to become even riskier um, and so I think the biggest thing I worry about is that ultimately the goal of attacks like that are to make people question reality and to not trust anything. Yes. And I do think we're that's a an enormous risk that I do I do see that acknowledged amongst people in the data and uh, computer science and media literacy spaces, this concept that it is so crucial for people to have clear, consistent, trustworthy sources. I am increasingly as a former journalist convinced that the demise of locally produced news is Mm -hmm. the root cause of a lot of this. Uh, And because if you look at the literal death of community reporting uh, across the United States, and I imagine across parts of Europe, if not all of Europe, it, it, that that does create truly a destabilizing effect because what's happening is as we all collectively move more online, uh, we we lose those people in the community who are entrusted to report accurately and consistently on that community. And so when we lose that local touch, uh, then it does ultimately lead to a world where there is too much information for us to consider and internalize at scale. And that does cause us to just question the essence of reality. And so the biggest takeaway I can give to people is to find a local source of news um, in hopefully you do have one wherever your audience members live. But but uh, please financially support your local yes. sources of journalism because uh, that is a huge culprit for a lot of the issues we're seeing with mm-hmm. misinformation and the lack of media literacy today. So can I bring one other risk area up um, in terms of anti-patterns? Can you actually talk around anti-patterns in data governance and what kind of common behaviors lead to anti-patterns? Sure. So any patterns I think of in data governance as being the 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 poor practices that in that relate to data governance. So these are these are any patterns are performed at scale and they are they have a detrimental effect on your data governance. The biggest issue I see, the biggest anti-pattern I see with data governance is the lack of it. Uh, you would be 
pretty stunned to see that uh, the lack of data maturity that most organizations have. And this is not limited to one industry, to one country, to either nonprofits or to corporations. I was a research analyst at Gartner in the States for several years before joining Steampunk. And I reported on trends in the cloud business intelligence space, which is where I started researching various AI techniques and how they could be used to solve specific business problems. And for years now, Gartner has been reporting on not just the possible trends that organizations could take advantage of, but also the lack of data maturity in organizations of all sizes. And the, and the reality is that seven to eight years after I started doing that initial work, we have more data produced and ingested than ever before. And if anything, the data maturity of most organizations is going down. And so the lack of data governance, the lack of standards, the lack of quality of quality assessments and what those look like, the lack of cross collaboration across silos, those are all anti-patterns as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and and again, we are as a society so far behind where we should be when it comes to data governance. And that does, again, create over-reliance on third-party large language models like ChatGPT because we have not done the inherent retrospective work to get our own models where they need to be. I do see that changing out of necessity over the next five to 10 years. But right now, those are the biggest anti-patterns that I see when it comes to data governance. But do, you, do you believe that the, whether it's governments or enterprises actually understand their data? No, I don't. And I think that's the that's also the biggest thing. Uh, that's one of the biggest problems I see as well, is that we I constantly talk to clients and to senior leaders at organizations who say we have a two pronged problem. We don't have enough technical talent on the data side to facilitate all of the requests that we get. We also do not have a high level strategy for data governance. And so as a result, we get all of these ad hoc requests, which are classified as urgent, whether they are or not. And we are expected to respond right away, almost like a queue. And so I that's another issue I see is that is this highly reactive environment. And we see this too with AI investments. Once ChatGPT exploded in mainstream popularity earlier this year, I mean, think about how many articles you read in 2023 yeah, about investing in AI and then nothing happens and organizations wonder why they wasted in many cases millions of dollars on these investments that didn't pan out and it really does come back to the lack of strategy and the lack of of processes and standards. And, and I know that that can sound very broad. The reason it's broad is because those are going to be different depending on each organization, because one or, uh, organization's data governance strategy is going to differ from another's. But you still have to figure out what data governance looks like in your organization. What is your plan to manage the data that you have at scale, uh, that that's essential. I just read an article with an entrepreneur who said that she started taking the entire month off of, De of December to exclusively focus on strategy planning for the forthcoming year. And so she oh, does not nice. take meetings with other, uh, with clients during December. She does not respond to 
request. She really uses the month of December to plan ahead for the forthcoming year. I know that sounds extreme and that the reality is most organizations can't afford to do that, especially if they are public. Um, that That is something that might not be able to happen to the same degree. Having said that, I she was using this practice as an example of a strategy that has transformed her business. And so I do think that the the lack of focus on strategic planning is what becomes an issue. And I, th- I again, think it's really essential for data leaders to do that introspective work of even figuring out where their data lives. I can't count the amount of clients I've worked with where, you know, I come in as part of a team to design a data architecture environment, to figure out what data mesh is going to look like, to fi- to help clients implement that federated approach we talked about. And so the first one of the first questions is always, "Oh, where where does your data live?" And they're like, "I don't know." Disperse. I mean, they don't even they literally don't even know which right, which right. which server yeah. oh, yeah. the, this data set lives on. They have a mix of on-prem and cloud. They that are and by the way, those on-prem cloud tools are often not integrated with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then that creates problems. They often have the same data set living not only in different environments, but sometimes the data in the same data set is different. And so that, and so I don't think that most organizations today have enough of a handle on their data. And that's why the introspective work of being honest about where you're at is really crucial. I think most leaders know that they are not prepared to meet the moment when it comes to their data. And so then they push it aside. And again, that is something that can't continue moving forward. So can I ask, what was the catalyst that inspired your writing the book? Because you wrote, you wrote yes. Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up. And the way you talk about this and your passion, was, was there a catalyst or was it just a mountain of the many reasons that you needed to put it to paper? That, that's a great question. I do remember the catalyst being that I was working with a particular client who whose job it was to disseminate data for public use. And when I conducted my user research and finished the discovery phase of the project, I re- and I got a handle on their processes for disseminating that data to the public, I realized that their was no automation involved. The, this Disseminating this data was a process that took days to complete. Several people were involved in, a, in very manual ways. And, there, and so the, the inefficiencies were just astronomical. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if, the, if an organization which existed to share data with the public was operating this way, then this was truly a bigger problem than I even realized. So that was the catalyst for me pitching and ultimately writing this book was confirming just how widespread the problem is and then doing what I could to propose a different approach to it. So as a service designer, I always say that I'm the user advocate on projects. My job is to figure out who the core users of any product or service are, to speak with them uh, using qualitative conversations to figure out what their experience is with that product or service, what they like or dislike about it, where they encounter friction, and then ultimately Ultimately, my job is to not only capture 
the current real state of that user experience, but to identify uh, areas of friction, which I can then work with my team to create solutions on. Mm-hmm. And I don't see most organizations thinking of data governance or data science as a design challenge or the or the approach to solving it as a design challenge. But I wrote this book to propose a different way of viewing this problem. And so I, I hope it has made an impact and will continue to do so because the more I do this work, the more convinced I become that this is not a technical question to solve. This is really a cultural transformation and and designing a data-driven culture is not something that happens by accident. It is a strategic approach. It's a strategic choice that organizations make. And I hope that I can move the needle at convincing data leaders to take that approach. And I and I think the way you lay it out in the mm-hmm. framework and providing mm-hmm. steps that they can take to exactly. it, it yep. gives a really good concrete approach cuz like we have so much data and it's like what's important what's not and you know like mm-hmm. and how do we use it and how do we benefit our business from it how do we benefit our customers from it all those sorts of things Having a practical approach is is incredibly useful, and um, your book is in my Amazon account, so on its way here. <laughs> oh, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well, Lauren. We'll we'll definitely let our our Absolutely. listeners uh, get get the link as well. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much. And and I just I know I, I we have time. I I'd really like if you could provide us, Lauren. I I love origin stories, and you've had. A quite a varied background. I find these stories wonderfully inspiring. So if you're happy to share your origin story with us. I would love that. Uh, So part of my impassioned plea to support local news is personal because I thought through university and even graduate school in London that I was going to become a journalist of some sort. I uh, chose to attend college at a university in a large city on the East Coast in part so that I could have easy access to journalism internships and newsrooms. I did live on-air radio reporting for an FM station in Washington, D.C. I interned at New York One, which is a very cable news station in New York City. It sounds like you know it, Rachel. I lived in New York for 15 years, and uh, I'm a big fan of the New York One and Pat. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if, you, if you've lived in New York City for any period of time, you know New York One. And the, I mean, that was my favorite summer, uh, definitely of college, if not ever. Was That was such an awesome opportunity. And I did pursue freelance news and digital news reporting for the first year out of graduate school. I loved the work as much as I thought I did, I would. And that was very fulfilling. Um, But what I realized pretty quickly was that the industry was too precarious to support a full-time career. And so I had to have a pretty honest conversation with myself about whether this career path was viable in terms of fulfilling basic adult needs like saving for a 401k have it uh, maybe having a family uh these sort having health insurance i mean these these were fundamental questions that i had to ask myself and so after 
doing freelance reporting for a year, I did decide to pursue employment in a different sector than news. But the the link between my career in tech and my career in news is that I had started my career reporting on trends in the tech and entrepreneurial space in, uh, in Europe from London. And so oh, nice. I had started um, my career in reporting as a tech reporter. And at the time, I didn't care which sector I covered. I just wanted the clips that would help me land jobs. But I realized in doing so that I actually was very interested in tech, specifically AI, as AI grew in prominence within the last decade. And so I transitioned to report it from reporting about tech to working in tech. I started in marketing several years ago and then eventually transitioned to being a research analyst. And then finally, I'm currently a service designer and author. And so that's in a nutshell, my origin story. I think the common link between all of it is this real genuine interest in understanding human behavior and how people interact with and are affected by tech. And that is the big question that drives a lot of this work. I think too many people view data governance as an activity that happens in isolation with no real world effects. I know Mm -hmm. from my own career how untrue this is. And a big part of my work involves helping people see the link between the lack of data governance and the very real world human consequences. Anything I can do to bridge that gap is what I feel is my life's work. That's awesome. Fantastic. Thank you, Lauren. Absolutely. I love that pathway too. It just, it's, um, tech is such a great world too. I mean, I, I, I've been in tech for decades, but I feel like I learn something new every day and I don't know if other industries are like that, but I just can't imagine working in any other world where things weren't changing seemingly daily. Well, right. And yeah. it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. And Rachel, you actually just hit on Another key reason why I wanted to work in news and work in tech now, one of the things I loved about interning and working in news is that there you do something different every day, even if the mm-hmm. mechanics of your job are the same, you're writing new articles, you're talking to new sources, you're thinking about new ways to f- tell and frame a story. And tech is the same. There's all literally every day something new to learn. And so if you're the type of person who likes learning, I think mm-hmm. tech is the perfect career path for you. And I, I, I hope I haven't come across in this conversation as a pessimist when it comes to tech, because the truth is that I also am a big proponent of data and tech and AI, and I'm very interested in slash excited by the opportunities that it brings. I think uh, my frustration comes from not seeing that opportunity realized, from seeing uh, most people take an approach to data, which involves burying their heads in the sand, as opposed to thinking, how can we use this data that we have to build something really exciting for our users? Mm -hmm. I think there's a ton of untapped opportunity and that data governance is a core part of getting you from point A to point B. Um, So I also am a big fan of tech. That's why I work in the sector. And I hope that there is work forthcoming that will help more organizations use 
tech, specifically AI, more effectively and help realize their full potential with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. What an exciting path ahead. I think there's so much opportunity and, you know, you just have to harness it and take that first step, right? And it can be a game changer. I, co I completely agree. Well, I am sad. We are at our time this week, Audra. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Oh, yeah, it really has. Thank you so much again for having me. Um, if folks want to find the book, uh, it's called Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up, and you can order it from both any major retailer, but also you can order through your local bookstores. So I would be very grateful to hear from uh, any readers and listeners who, who purchased the book and to hear their thoughts. And I hope that this this was the first of many conversations that I'll have with you. Excellent. I'll, Absolutely. I'll be We'd writing love to you have feedback. You back. Yes. Don't worry. Please do. In all seriousness, please, please do. Because there, because I, I mentioned to you both before we started recording that a version two of this book is certainly not out of the question. I, there are no plans at the moment um, to do that, but it's certainly something that's on my mind. I, I think at, right now, before I would write another book, I would want to make updates to this one because again, the landscape yes. is constantly changing. There's always more to unpack and address. So, uh, and I'm a big part of when and if I will write a version two depends on reader feedback and what they'd like to learn more about. So Audra, please do reach out with any feedback. Um, and I hope your listeners will do the same. Excellent. I Absolutely. will. Absolutely. Yes. Awesome. Well, to all of our listeners out there, thanks again for joining us uh, for another amazing, amazing discussion. Um, and as always, don't forget to smash that subscription button. Boom, boom, boom. You get a fresh episode every Tuesday, Audra. How it awesome is, is that? Super every awesome. Tuesday. So until next time, everyone, stay secure. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.